0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James
1: Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. So, I got this newsletter once, and it was called The Profile. And a lot of the profiles actually were people who have been on the podcast. And it's been such a pleasure. She basically, in just a few pages, reaches the essence of who these people are and then has links to all sorts of other profiles of them but she summarizes all of them and then she gives her takeaways almost like a podcast that's in text like it's so i enjoy reading this newsletter so much once or twice a week and i highly recommend people subscribe to it but polina pompliano author of this newsletter the profile is on the podcast now and we talk about all her best profiles and what she looks for and what she's learned and such a pleasure to talk to Polina. so here she is How often do you publish it? I, I, it's like once a week or once every.
2: It's once a week to the whole list, and every Wednesday for the paying members, where I do like a dossier um, on an yeah. individual person.
1: I get that. I'm a paying yeah. member. So. thank you, James. <laughs> yeah, and and it's great because like I feel. We're all whether you're a, a podcaster or you, you. So you write this newsletter, the profile where you you pick yep. someone who's interesting to you, and we'll we'll explore in a second why someone is interesting to you. But we, we're all after the same thing. Like when I interview someone, I'm trying. I'm not just interviewing them because oh that would be cool to interview this guy. Right. It's like I or, or or a lady. But I want to learn something about myself. I want to be better, and I want my readers or listeners or whatever would be better. And your approach is similar. And I feel we extract often similar things, but it's great that you don't have to talk to them. (laughs) You (laughs) can just profile them. So you read every profile that's been written by them and you kind of curate and you summarize, and then you take away your takeaways and insights and their quotes and interesting videos of them. People have to sign up for your newsletter, just see what I'm talking (laughs) about. But they're so insightful, your, your takeaways. And you, and I learned so much. Like, I didn't know Keanu Reeves dad was in jail for most of his young life. Uh, for, you know, I mean, that was just one example. I didn't know about Robert Hogue, the guy who, who, why? Okay. Let's start with that. Why did you profile Robert Hogue?
2: So a lot of times I like to say that I, start with an idea first and then find a person, uh, to learn from, uh, about that idea. So if it's, you know, making good decisions in times of uncertainty, it's Annie Duke, who used to be a professional poker player, et cetera. Yeah.
1: She's been on the podcast.
2: Oh, awesome. (laughs) For, for Robert, it was more like I was talking to one of my friends who's a former teacher about, um, children's books and how when kids are kids, um, they don't, they don't judge each other in the same way that, you know, when they become teenagers or adults, uh, they do. And I happened to come across uh, this TED Talk by Robert, and then I watched it, and I was like, ah, this is exactly what I was talking to my friend about. And then I started reading more about him, and I thought he had a really, really interesting story. Uh, So that's how I wrote about him.
1: Yeah, so the story with him uh, is that uh, he's not like, famous celebrity, billionaire, entrepreneur. Right. Um, but he was born with this tumor on his face that's very, yeah. very visible. It's like his whole nose is out of proportion. And as you say it, he's, he's ugly. It's, it's in mm-hmm. the title of that profile. And he talks about it. And he had the choice of uh, having surgery to correct it, but there was like a one in five chance he would go blind. And he didn't want to take that chance. What a, what a horrible choice to have to make because people th- might say oh it's just looks don't be so concerned with your looks but he's like very ugly so people will will notice him and he sees those looks all the time and but it was very interesting what you know y- y- your takeaways from from that and uh, you know I, ha- I have a bunch of notes here that I jotted down yeah. well first off how did you decide to start doing this you've been doing this newsletter for three years. How did you decide to start doing it? What did you want out of it?
2: Yeah, actually, I started it, uh, I first started it in February of 2017, while I was still a reporter at Fortune. Uh, So it started very much as a side hustle. Uh, But in in something I just did for myself, the reason I started it is because in 2017, I mean, Substack wasn't really around at all. Um, I don't there weren't reporters leaving their jobs to work on their newsletters full-time. There was this idea of having a personal newsletter as a writer or as a reporter. So a lot of my colleagues had personal newsletters where they would send it to family and friends and highlight their own articles that they wrote that week. So I was like, well, you know, I write a lot of articles, but um, 2017, was I was kind of getting a little bit... um, I was falling out of love with journalism in the sense that 2017 is really when I saw a lot of media outlets rewriting other people's stories, not doing original reporting. There was a lot of clickbait. I was just not very happy. Um, So what I would do is I was like, I mean there's still so much good journalism out there. You just have to like go find it. And um, I really, really enjoyed profiles because they were deeply reported. They were about an individual person. You really get got to know them. And to me, I learned best through the experiences of other people and studying those experiences. So I was like, I'll create a quote unquote personal newsletter to send to family and friends. Um, but instead of promoting my own articles, I'll just curate. At the time, it was like five or six long form profiles that I found that week. And, and that's it. And so the first few editions were super juvenile and, <laughs> um, you know, just links to family and friends.
1: But that, that's the case with everything. Like you, any new format you're trying, you're it's like you have to find your voice and it takes a while. People don't realize that like, oh, I'm going to make TikTok videos. It takes a while to kind of yep. master an art form and now you've got you've got it down to a science like it really it's a, it's i know what to expect you know, i'm, I'm going to get your take on someone i'm going to get some storytelling then i'm going to see your links to uh, profiles and your analysis of it your key takeaways some quotes media to watch i'm really going to learn about these people and i like a lot of the entertainment ones we talked about Keanu Reeves a little bit he's always interesting because you always think he's like this sad guy. There's always the meme of sad Keanu. (laughs) What was one of your takeaways from that one? I I actually don't have that written down.
2: Yeah. Um, So I, he was one of the people that, People thought they knew him, but nobody really knew him because he's um, notoriously secretive. He doesn't speak to the press often. Uh, there have been a few profiles on him, but every time they ask him, for example, about his personal life or his dad, he refuses to talk about it. Because and, and there was one reporter who was like, "Ooh, do you not want to talk about it because you don't want to seem a certain way?" He's like, "No, I don't want to talk about it because it's private." <laughs> and That's I so think. Funny. Yeah. And I I think that there's this like perception we have of celebrities, and he's just a person who happened to get famous. Like, he is just a normal human. Um, I recently uh, tweeted about this that he has a lot of money. Um, I think he's worth over $360 million, which is a lot of money. Um, but he believes in, Using he believes in using money with a purpose. So, um, so th- when they were filming the Matrix sequels, he gave a percentage of his own profits to the costume design team and the special effects team because he's like, why don't they get a share of the profits given that they I think that they are the ones who made the movie? Another time he gave um up some of his own salary so that Al Pacino could be in the devil's advocate, so the producers could afford him. He wanted to work with him. Um, he did the same thing on the repl- Placement so he could work with Jane Hackman. So it's, it's, th- those are the stories that typically don't make the news. And I don't particularly think he wants them to make the news. Uh, for example, he's one of the largest donors to a children's cancer research hospital. And for a long time, nobody knew that. And then somehow a reporter found that out. But I, I don't know. I just find him a very genuine person. Um, so I, that's, that's one of the things that I really learned about him.
1: Well, I feel like you, you bring out the genuine in all the profiles that you, that you work on because so many times people overthink, how do people perceive me? Like what's my personal, you know, I, I remember about 10 years ago, I started hearing the phrase, what's your personal brand? And it always made me pause because I think Okay, well, like Coca-Cola has a brand, but it's a, a brand is a, a lie. There's the brand, and then there's a the reality. As as Steve Jobs put it, it's it's sugared water, and but their brand makes it seem like oh we're exciting. It gives you energy. It's you know it's Coca-Cola. So so there's always this disconnect between someone's personal brand and who they really are. But I think yes. when you see with these profiles, like you know like Tyler Perry, who's done like. I feel like he's done a billion movies. That, that,
2: <laughs> yes. like he has. Like
1: he makes a movie for like $15 million and box office does 80 million and he keeps doing it over and over again and is extremely successful that way. But mm-hmm. uh, you you brought to life that he started out struggling. No one thought he could do it. His first scripts were horrible. He started writing plays. Uh, he, he began writing scripts while selling cars and working as a bill collector. And, mm-hmm. you know, he... he, he you know, these people really have to go through something before they're successful.
2: Absolutely. And, and I think, so I get a lot of flack and I don't know if you do as well, because you use the word success to describe your podcast sometimes too. Um, I say that like, I, 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 the profile studies the most successful people in the world. And people often get really upset about the word success because they have this idea in their head that they associate it with financial success or something like that. And, and the, the whole point is, I wrote about this last week. Success is a very, it's deeply personal and it's all about how you define it. So, what you just said, like to me, A successful person is someone who has succeeded, failed, learned, and then rebuilt themselves or their career or whatever they were working on again. And Tyler Perry is a perfect example of somebody like that.
1: What was like a deep failure that he had, you know, along the way to success? So there's always the kind of classic origin story where, oh, you come from humble beginnings, you fail at first, and then you succeed. And it seems like a straight line but really it's a lot more volatile than that. Like what were some of his, you know, hills and valleys?
2: Yeah. he had a lot of like little, um, little wins along the way, but no real big success. Um, and I think for him, it was, he got, um, when he would write a screenplay or a film or something like that, so many times people would reject it. And he said that, what he learned from that experience is that it's actually a good thing to be underestimated because they were like, you can own this. We don't want any part of this. And this is how he ended up owning his entire creative output, which then made him a billionaire, which is something he never thought you know, he, he would be one day.
1: He's very interesting because he's obsessed with ownership. Like he yes. owns, I don't know what all the things he owns, but he like owns a studio. He owns, he like not only owns the rights to all his creative works, but he owns the whole process. He's like vertical and horizontally owning everything. Why do you think ownership is so important to him? Like ownership's never been important to me, but maybe it should be more important to me. Maybe that's why I go broke all the time is (laughs) because ownership's not important to me.
2: No, I think, um, yeah, he I, he he's created one of the most valuable individually owned libraries in Hollywood. And that's because so many people just like didn't want to own any part of what he was doing. So he ended up, it was kind of like not by design that he ended up owning this, but um, he learned this from Oprah uh, when he was little because she is a really big proponent of ownership and owning your uh, creative output. So And that's, that's kind of the other lesson is like when he was so young, he didn't have any mentors around him or people to look up to. And he has, he makes it a really big deal to be like, I learned this about ownership from Oprah by coming home after school and like watching her show. You don't have to know your mentors in order to be affected by them.
1: Yeah. And it's an interesting thing because there's like, there's like a DNA of success. And in that DNA is the word mentorship. And people say, and I've even written like, you know, you need to find a mentor, but I've also said it could be a virtual mentor. It could be Absolutely. someone who lectures on YouTube or or a, a book, you know, a set of books that you really love. And because it's hard for people when they come from, you know, humble beginnings or when they're first starting out to have like this great mentor that's going to, like the Obi-Wan Kenobi, that, that's going to lead them to save the universe. And I think Tyler Perry makes a great point that you're you're you know, learn sometimes it's good not to have an in-person mentor yes. because there's often and Robert Green talks about that in his books, like it's, there's often competition between the mentor and the mentee. And that could end up being a, a dangerous relationship.
2: Wait, a really a really good example of this actually is Magnus Carlson, who is you know an amazing chess player. Um he became I think a grandmaster, if I'm not mistaken, at age 13. So a lot of reporters were like, ooh, who are your idols? And they would refer to these other chess players. And every time that they asked him, he was like, I really don't have an idol. I learn from these people, but I don't idolize them. And I think that that's really, really important when we're talking about this stuff, is that uh, you shouldn't—you should— aim to learn not idolize because idolizing kind of puts you in this like blind worshiping of these successful people that portray a certain brand but may not necessarily live or be that themselves therefore learning and what i try to include in every single profile of these people is also the the downside and what they had to sacrifice and give up and compromise on in order to get where they are today
1: by the way, you know, I had just had Magnus Carlson's father on the podcast. Did you? Uh, oh it, yeah, fascinating. It, it hasn't aired yet, but I'm a chess player. I'm in I know a lot about Magnus Carlson. And you're right, he and I think what separates, even at that level, what separates a great performer from the best in the world is that the best in the world re, almost redefines the domain. Uh yes. like because because they don't hold anything sacred. And you could see this in his games. There's no dogma or ideal in chess that he is like, oh, you have to do this to be a good player. He, it's not like he makes it up as, as he goes along. He's, he has studied the game more than anyone in history, but he has changed the game I think because he doesn't idolize anyone. Yeah. And I've had, you know, Gary Kasparov was on the podcast, one of the greatest players in history, and I'm like, what did you, he, he mentored, or he taught uh, Magnus for a while, and I said, what did you teach him? Because you know Magnus is, is you know, it's different generation, so Magnus plays a different kind of game, and he he's like, I, it's not like I taught him how to be a better player. It's like I taught him how to think like Kasparov, and yeah. so that was an interesting way to look at it. Like Magnus had did have that hole probably in his, he didn't default to the aggressive style of Gary. He has his own style, and so it's probably it was useful for him to fill that out in his voice of how he expresses yes. himself in chess. But I, I do think the mentorship thing is very interesting that, that Tyler Perry brought up. Oh, yeah, I really like this. I never heard of this astronaut, Chang Diaz. Uh,
2: yeah. But he was, he
1: was very inspirational that you wrote about.
2: Yes. What, what made you think of him? Okay, uh, so I had read a profile on him years ago, um, and I was like, I wonder what he's up to now. Uh, so I kind of went down that rabbit hole, and then I, I started working on it. But I... As an immigrant myself, um, I just Where really appreciate Bulgaria. So okay. I know all about chess, James.
1: <laughs> okay, right. You're probably like uh, a grandmaster. I hear I'm no. talking shit. You're like going to no. hustle me.
2: No, but my dad plays um, like uh, Fisher chess, one minute chess. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it's yeah. like crazy. Uh, but no. So uh, Franklin, he was 18 when he came to the United States. He came from... Costa Rica uh and the the reason he came was because he's all his life he wanted to be an astronaut and he wrote a letter to NASA and then he was shocked when they wrote back um except in one line in the letter said you have to be a US citizen in order to be an astronaut for NASA so he took that to mean oh that's all I need to do. I just need to be a U.S. citizen and I'll I'll get to like live out my dream. So he moved to the U.S. uh, to Connecticut, lived with his aunt and a few of his cousins. Um, Even though he had graduated from high school in Costa Rica, he was like, oh, maybe I should spend one more year in complete high school in America because that improves my chance of getting into college. Um, Got into the University of Connecticut on a full scholarship and then the admissions office said, "Oh, we are so sorry. We thought you were from Puerto Rico, not Costa Rica. So technically, you are not <laughs> eligible for the scholarship because you're not a citizen." Um, oh, and it, it's it, he has a he has a wild story, but he eventually makes it to NASA.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then I I like a lot of the things he says. Like, um, uh, this is this is very interesting because this this in an odd way works in entrepreneurship. One quote of his. Uh, one of his professors, uh, I'm quoting you, quoting yeah. him, but he says one of his professors told him, "If your experiment works perfectly, then you've learned nothing." I guess it was a science professor, and this is a theme throughout all of the profiles. So, so I'm curious if it's a theme for you, or you really do notice, like, notice this in all examples of success. But you only learn from not like total abject failure, but you learn from losing. You learn from the times you feel bad. And that's the common thread, through, I think, through all, 100% of your profiles.
2: Yes. Um, one of the first profiles I read was this um, old Russian guy who's amazing at chess and all these, like Steve Schwartzman, like Jamie Dimon, all these business Big business people would go to him and play chess with him in order to fail and in order to be like demoralized and humiliated and all this stuff. Uh, Lev Albert was his name. And uh, oh yeah, and it's like, I know, yeah. I
1: know who he is. He was um, Lev Albert was a three time U.S. champion, but you know from Russia.
2: Was he from Russia? Okay, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know if I was misremembered. But yeah, all these like business magnates would go play with him just so they could feel that humiliation and and just misery of losing. Uh, And I think that when you have a lot of successes back to back, there is a tendency to become stagnant and complacent. So a lot of these people look for these things this late in their career. But in the beginning, I mean, you look at people like Sarah Blakely, um, and the reason I think you'll see failure as a recurring theme throughout all these dossiers and, and deep dives is because I'm just fascinated how one person can take a failure to mean one thing and another person can take it to mean something completely different. For Sarah Blakely, for example, founder of Spanx, when she was growing up, her dad every night at the dinner table would have them go around the table and say what they failed at that day. And he would be genuinely disappointed if the kids didn't have like a good meaty failure to share. So in her mind, failure became not about you lost or you're a loser or whatever. It became about, oh, you didn't take a risk big enough today.
1: Yeah, and I I think it helps you risk is a very good way to put it because it helps you determine what sort of risks you should take you know some risks are too big some risks are not big enough and it's that balance where you know you're 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 risking just enough that you could find success on the other side or you can learn from it and and not be devastated i was talking to a friend of mine who studies uh, in an academic way entrepreneurship he tries to figure out a formula for entrepreneurship he's very smart And he says, how do you know there's demand for this product you're building? Uh, You haven't sold anything. You haven't finished building the product yet. And they always say, well, everybody I talk to says, uh, yes, we would definitely buy this. This is great. And, and he says to them, well, it means you actually don't know anything yet. You have no idea if there's demand. You don't know if they're saying yes because they, want to, they, they have a desire to make you happy. You don't know if they're saying yes because they want you to leave the room and they know that a yes is what is required to make you leave the room. So you only can learn, from, and he studied like hundreds of companies and he started a bunch of companies. He said you could only learn from the customers who say no to you because then you can actually Absolutely. learn why they don't, choose to replace their current solutions with you. That's actual valuable information.
2: Absolutely. And I learned this. um, So I was doing the profile completely for free from 2017 to 2020. In January of 2020, when I actually was like, I wonder, like people tell me they like it, but do they find it valuable enough to back it with their dollars? So I decided to test it, and I made the paywall $10 a month or $100 a year. And the hardcore, super, super loyal readers were like, absolutely, I'm happy to support your work, but it wasn't a lot of people. And then though, the most valuable information I got from that experiment was all the people that wrote in who said, I, I'm not going to pay 100, but I would, I would pay 50 a year. And I was mm. like, oh, interesting. So when I lowered it to 50 a year, it was a whole wave of people who actually signed up. So that's how you find a market. And that's how you understand, like, is there demand for this?
1: Wow, that's so interesting. And I wonder if there was a little bit of an effect there where because you asked them, for some feedback they felt involved in the process mm-hmm. they felt involved in the product like it's their product now so when you when you said okay fifty dollars i wonder if that was a little bit almost a uh, an unconscious sales technique that involving them in the process of you build it, productizing this newsletter you know c- c- making it So so, and now you're making a living from this newsletter. I mean, you you and your husband both do newsletters. You're the news. I always say when when I have on a guest who writes a newsletter, I usually say something like, "Yours is one of the few newsletters I read," but that's because I've had you, your husband, and your brother-in-law on the podcast, and these are the three newsletters that are my favorite newsletters.
2: It's, that's awesome. I listened to both of those episodes that you did with Joe and Anthony. And it's funny because I started mine in February of 2017. Anthony started in May of 2018 and Joe has grown so quickly. And he started, I think in maybe spring or summer of 2020. (laughs)
1: Yeah, he started after the pandemic because he was just looking to combine his interest in sports and finance. And there was no newsletter out there doing that. So it's, it's a good story, and then so so do you reveal the number of subscribers you have
2: um, publicly? I think I've said uh, tens of thousands of free subscribers, and then thousands of premium members. But they all pay a different amount because you can pay the ten dollars a month or fifty dollars a year. But also, there's an option to edit it, so you can actually pay more than the fifty dollars. So there's people who pay a hundred. There's people. There's one person who paid a thousand just because they wanted to support independent writers. Um, so it was wow. really, really cool. That's great.
1: That's What's great is we live in this world now where this you could do this if you want for the rest of your life. Like it kind Absolutely. of removes this fear point for you. Like what am I going to do if I get laid off or fired? You, you are com- in complete control over your destiny because – subscribers don't mass unsubscribe overnight. Like even if there's an economic downturn, they've already subscribed for a year, maybe in some cases. So it keeps going and, right. and you build new subscribers anyway. You have you have some churn, but, uh, and, and of course you provide high quality content. People share it. I share your your newsletter all the time. But it's interesting because another theme in your profiles is that everybody is in control of, they even stress they're in control of their own, destiny like if you want something done you have to just do it uh let me see i wrote i wrote this quote that i have no idea who said it always bet on yourself or invest in yourself somebody must have said that in one of your in one of the profiles but this was a theme in a lot of people is that you have to take the action yourself tyler perry had to own his own studio in order to be a a movie director Uh, he had to start his own studio they didn't wait to be chosen by someone else to be successful. They kind of had to, had to really prove themselves first before anyone would notice them. A lot of times people think it's the reverse, but success is actually no one's, no one's going to wake up and say, I want to make you famous or I want to make you a successful songwriter or whatever. Or I think Vince Gilligan was another one. Uh, the guy who wrote uh, the TV series breaking bad, nobody wanted to do breaking bad. They, they didn't want to do a show about, (laughs) A guy who who go is constantly change his personality, kind of morphs through the series. And it's a show about a, a guy who makes a meth lab. Like they felt that was too controversial, so he had to really just you know be resilient and persevere. And and that, that there's the it's sort of like failure, perseverance, doing it yourself, trying not to rely on too many other people knowing how to take risks through small experiments. These are like a lot of themes among the hundreds of people you've profiled.
2: That's really well put. <laughs> um, the the bet on yourself, uh, that actually, that came when I was trying to make the decision of whether I should stay at Fortune, w- where I liked my job uh, and I had a lot of autonomy and I I, I really enjoyed it, or leave and uh, do the profile full time. And it, it, at first it seemed like a crazy idea, but the more I thought about it, the more I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I was like, I feel like I'll, at Fortune I write about entrepreneurship with the profile I'll be living it. Um, so one of my... Uh, concerns was, oh my God, but what if I can't make enough money or I'm not good at it or I fall flat on my face, etc. And Anthony actually was the one who told me that you will never be more powerful unless you tie your identity to your own name, AKA bet on yourself. Um, because I think a lot of us actually make the mistake of tying our identities around something external, whether it's a relationship, a job, some sort of... Uh, athletic feet or something like that where it can be taken away from you and at fortune i could have been fired i could always lose my relationship and it's like who are you outside of that if you build a brand solely on under your own name you're responsible for that in in it Like, it'll live or die based on what you do. Um, And I actually really, really love that because I don't feel like I've tied my identity around something external that can be taken away from me.
1: It's true. And, and, okay, here's a quote from Keanu Reeves, the man himself, live life on your own terms. And you just can't do that. Like, as great as a job might be, you can't do it at a job. It's impossible. And, uh, I mean... I don't know what ups or uh, have you had ups or downs in the process? Like you've been doing this four years now. Uh, has it, have you ever doubted yourself or been scared?
2: So many times. Um, and so many times like things fall through or, um, you know, somebody has like customer support issues and I'm the first line of like help. <laughs> um, but it's, it, it feels like you're doing a lot of things. And for a while, I doubted myself because I had identified as a writer and a creative for so long that learning the business side of things uh, was a really big challenge for me. But it it really helps to have somebody like Anthony, whose brain works completely different from mine, uh, be like, OK, well, you could spend three days working on this super creative project. But is that actually going to help you grow the profile, which is ultimately the goal? Because if nobody's reading it, then what's the point of doing this project? And that always kind of brings me back to, OK, What can I do to grow the subscriber list? What can I do to make more money? And like things that I never had to think about when working at a corporate job because it was taking care for me.
1: Did you feel at first almost inauthentic asking for money? Because it's hard to be the creative and the one asking for money.
2: Yes, but also no, (laughs) because I knew that I love the subscription model because I know that people will unsubscribe if they think it's shitty content or if they don't like it or they don't find value in it. So I always trusted that the the market will tell me versus like trying to find a sponsor or an advertiser uh, where you, you know, depending on your negotiation skills, you could, pull some really big money in, but you don't actually know if it's valuable uh, to the reader. This way, the read I have a direct relationship with the reader and they tell me with their money, if something's not working for them.
1: I have to say Airbnb has changed my life I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I, the home that I left to come to this Airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And you know, thankfully, Zip Recruiter puts the hustle in your hiring, so you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. Zip Recruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, Zip Recruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I had a free newsletter forever and still do. And then I started charging for some newsletter content and I was really terrified. Maybe I was terrified because secretly I thought I was horrible and nobody would subscribe. Or I was also terrified that people would think I was selling out somehow, even though it's a lot of work to, to write every single day and uh, you know, to deliver high quality value and, and so on. And I was hiring people, but have you ever, what about on the creative side? Like, have you ever felt a little burnt out, you know, sticking to the schedule?
2: Um, sometimes I feel like, you know, uh, I, I talk about this a lot. Sometimes I'll start working on a profile dossier and I'm like, mm, I don't know if this person's like interesting enough. And then I remember a conversation I had with a professor in college, my journalism professor, where uh, our assignment was to go interview and do a profile on a person. And I think I picked some student that seemed interesting, but then I talked to them. And then I came back to my professor and I said, I can't do it. I need to switch. I need to switch the person that I'm doing. And he was like, why? And I said, because they are the most boring person on the planet that I somehow picked and I, I can't get anything out of it. And he said, nobody is inherently boring. It just means that you haven't asked the right questions yet. So that's stayed with me forever. So every time I feel like, ooh, I'm burnt out or I don't have time or this person doesn't seem interesting, I always think back to that um, and I remember why I'm doing it. And a lot of times these are a lot of work. They take a lot of time, but sometimes they materialize into real interviews. So I did a dossier on Danny Meyer. I had never talked to him before. And then he messaged me, said he liked it. And now I have an interview scheduled with him in a few weeks. So it's like seeing seeing the outcome of the work uh, is really, really rewarding.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's it, it's interesting because, again, you get the chance to learn for yourself. Like, do you feel like your life has improved based on, on the hundreds of like, if you had never done all of these profiles and, and again, what I really like is you, you, you write about your takeaways from each one. I feel like maybe I should have done that more with the podcast. Cause sometimes I forget what I learned and I never write write it down or sometimes I write it down. Sometimes I don't. And, but, but nowadays I usually try to get at least one thing that's going to change my life from each interview I do.
2: I love that. Yeah. And I think the, the reason to me, it's not a like, I, I don't foresee myself burning out is because this is genuinely the way that I learn. Uh, and I've always done this. When I first moved to New York, I looked up Sarah Blakely's career path because I was making $34,000 a year working at a media startup. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I can't, I can barely afford to live in New York city. Like, what am I doing? Had this existential crisis Whenever, when I, when I started learning about Sarah Blakely and reading her story and, and listening to interviews and all this stuff, it just completely um, changed my mindset and helped me think like you have this long road ahead of you. You can learn these things from this person and apply them to your own life. That's why I love podcasts like yours. I've listened to them for such a long time because it uh i learn from people's experiences so the profile is nothing but just my notes on the things that i do anyway
1: <laughs> okay so you've listened to my podcast plus you've you're you're an expert on all these this diverse group of high peak performers which is a category that i focus on in the the podcast the difference is and i i'm jealous of your technique cuz you get to just dive down whatever rabbit hole you want i have just like an hour or whatever to interview somebody. And I like your, pro- I would rather talk about somebody than interview them. I think in many <laughs> cases, cause interviewing's hard. And, uh, uh, but I like reading about people and learning about them. What, what advice would you give me from, from an, you're an expert profiler. What advice would you give me for my podcast?
2: The thing that people repeat is often the thing that they have thought the most about or the thing that they want the world to see. Um, I, when I did uh, a deep dive on Kris Jenner of the Kardashians, I never thought I had anything to learn from Kris Jenner. She's absolutely fascinating. And the more I listened to interviews she'd done, the more I realized that the one constant in all of her interviews is that she loves to reiterate that when people say no, it just means that, you know, she's like that much closer to a yes, or she hasn't done her job or something like that. Um, so the persistence and mm. that kind of thing, I was like, oh, that's interesting. But, um, but yeah, I think like asking, asking different questions with the same, uh, inten- like the same question, but in different ways to try to understand how a person thinks is really, really important.
1: That's really interesting because I noticed like um Howard Stern last year published a book of his like a collection of his interviews and I noticed that he, sometimes he'll go down a path in an interview and they'll say oh Howard I don't want to talk about that and he'll he'll be like no problem no problem but then he'll come back at it later from a completely yeah. different angle and eventually he's warmed them up so much that they melt and they they you know become more forthcoming and that's a that's a really good point like I wonder when do you feel an interviewer fails when they don't do that. Like, how do how do you f- fail not doing that?
2: Um, if it's too all over the place, or if it's uh, not pointed enough, mm-hmm. uh, and and I also think that the best interviewers have listened and done their homework on um, these people, and they know the types of questions they get asked all the time, so they try to ask something else.
1: Yeah. See, that's that. That's. Part of the problem, actually, is if you prepare too much, I know, I, don't, I know they don't want to be asked this for the thousandth time, but that might be the central issue of their lives. Uh, so they, there's a kind of a, a, a dichotomy there where you, everybody wants to know the answer to the question that they've always been asked, but they don't want to answer it for the millionth time. So you have to kind of always figure out new ways to get in there.
2: Yes. And and I actually encountered this. I interviewed um, the former CEO of GE, uh, General Electric, Jeff Immelt. He oh, yeah. Wrote a whole I've interviewed book. him as well. Yep. Exactly. So he wrote a whole book about his experience at GE. There's like, you have to talk about that. Um, but one thing I noticed that nobody had asked him and he kind of mentioned um, we were talking about all his failures and things that he regrets at GE and leadership mistakes. And then he said, you know, I was lucky that I could come home and have like a normal life at home. And that helped keep me grounded. And so then I circled back on that and I was like, hold on a second. A lot of people, when they have so much chaos in their professional life, how did you maintain stability and calm in your personal life? He's still married. He has kids. Like, Everything seems to be going well for him personally. And that's not something I had heard him talk about. Um, And he related that experience to everything else he was facing. But that's another way to get into a central issue everybody wants to talk about, but he hasn't necessarily talked about it yet.
1: What's interesting there, I think, is that you're very interested in that topic. So you've recently gotten married. Obviously, you want your marriage to be a success. And- I, I notice sometimes you'll write about yeah. relationships in general. You, you asked your readers for um, – you, you asked your married readers for advice and, and you wrote about the advice that they gave you and you quoted different articles like the 36 questions to ask your partner and all these things. So it's sort of like you, when you have this newsletter, the, the, the profile, you're given a freedom to also write about yourself. Which you wouldn't yes. necessarily get writing for the New Yorker or writing for Fortune. I mean, you might get it, but you might not. But at the profile, you could you, your own publication. You could write about whatever you want. So I see you interweave your story in a lot of these uh, posts.
2: And this is what makes you a great interviewer is that you know about incentives and context and why I am, you know, doing this and asking these types of questions. That's that's exactly. It's just, I think the best interviewers actually listen. And I wouldn't have caught that if I wasn't actively listening to what Jeff was saying. You wouldn't have caught this if you weren't actively reading what I was writing. Um, so I think like incentives and context and active listening are three keys to great interviews.
1: And look, the conversation you have with somebody, it's the only time, like people always say to me, James, don't interrupt so much your guests, let them talk. When am I ever going to talk to this person again? Like I have to, I have to interrupt to ask the questions I want to ask sometimes. I mean, I try not to be rude about it. I think I got better at that, but uh, you know, you have to be able to kind of disrupt someone's normal. You know, yes. a lot of these people go on like, like Jeff Immelt goes on like 500 podcasts. You have to kind of interrupt his normal pattern.
2: Yes. Cause he's repeating the same stuff over and over again. So you, you gotta be like, okay, but let's go in this direction.
1: Now I was, I was fascinated by your profile of Malcolm Gladwell. Like he, it's very interesting hearing about like his creative process. He says he writes, or he thinks about writing for three hour for every hour he writes, he thinks about it for three hours and he has a very inter- and he makes a very interesting point that don't go to the internet to satisfy your curiosity because you're only getting the most popular queries or replies so everybody's already read that reply when you type in a question into Google cuz that's why it ranks so highly so yeah. I thought I thought it was interesting and and this is also something that happens in a lot of your profiles is that people say it's better to be different than better so better yes. to be unique than the best uh, I'm trying to think who, who else might have said that. I know he said it. Maybe Taylor Swift said it. I, I forget. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, A lot it. of
2: people. Um, yeah, I like, for example, um, I think so Malcolm Gladwell had this quote where he was like, basically, the best pieces of art, the best movies, the best songs, the most interesting people, they leave an aftertaste um after you're done with them, which is imp- because it's imperfectly blended together. And that's kind of what you want to do as a person. You don't want to be perfect. you you want to be interesting. I love that. And I think it it's definitely a theme that runs across. like I mean, the rock, for example, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Uh, people were like, you're never going to make it in Hollywood. Are you kidding me? But because he was different and imperfect and didn't fit the mold, people found him interesting and that's what differentiated him.
1: Right. Like when when he walked into a room, probably he stood out. He wasn't like the regular actor just walking in. Uh, So by the way, it's interesting because I have the quotes right in front of me now. Um, Gladwell says uh, people are drawn to things that are done imperfectly. So if something is, if a person or object is imperfect, you're drawn to it. But, and Taylor Swift is the one who says better, it's better to be interesting than perfect. So it's interesting how, I mean, they're two, you couldn't find two more completely different people, Taylor Swift and Malcolm Gladwell, but their key, one of their keys to success or, or to their own particular success is very similar. They almost said the exact same quote.
2: Yes. And Taylor Swift actually, I just remembered she had this song that went viral because people kept the, the lyrics sounded like she was saying uh, Starbucks lovers. But because of that imperfection, it kept it at number one for a very, for nine weeks straight, I think. And she knows that. She was like, it was imperfectly done. Technically, it's a fault on my end because people didn't hear it right, but it helped give it character.
1: That's so interesting. Like, uh, there's a book that just came out in the past month or so by Jonah Lehrer, Lehrer I think you say his name, uh, called, I think it's called Mystery. And oh. it's all about this, how in creativity, the works we're often most attracted to is where there's the the largest amount of mystery or imperfection. So for oh. instance, Kanye West has this song, Runaway, where he just it starts off where he just plays 15 sort of dissonant piano keys in a row. Like slowly, you just hear these 15 keys and and like no song starts like that. And so, and then it goes into the B and the song and everything. And so just right from that, people are wondering when they're hearing these piano keys, like what is this song going to be? And then, you know, it's become one of his most popular songs. And, you know, he kind of breaks down all these different artistic works whether it's music or books or whatever or or paintings and yeah. finds that the the most successful like the the most technically talented or skilled people might not be the most successful people because the successful ones are leaving that that mystery that that those imperfections in
2: Absolutely. I, and, and I'm personally fascinated by that because when we moved, uh, to the U.S. from Bulgaria, I was eight years old and being in elementary school and not speaking English and having no friends crazy time. But I will never forget, like I would dread going to the cafeteria because every day was like something that I, I, completely different. It was like, what the hell is a corn dog? I'd never seen that before. It wasn't a hot dog. It was sweet. It was all wrapped in this bread. Then I would like Cut! I would eat my pizza with like a fork and a knife and kids were like well, what the hell are you doing so because of that experience I was like I don't want to be different I don't want to be whatever I just want to be perfect and blend in perfectly and just be like everybody else and living in Georgia I kind of somehow did that and becomes became super super boring that to the point where I didn't recognize myself never had an opinion never offered anything interesting but then When I moved to New York, I think is really when it changed, when I saw like everybody's different and it does not matter. Uh, And people actually um, reward being different and interesting and imperfect. And that's kind of when I became more of myself.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I I think similar happened to me, like around, I I used to, Right for you wrote for Fortune. I wrote for Forbes and the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. I wrote a bunch of financial books in the OOS. Yeah. But then finally, I got sick of seeing all these people on CNBC or wherever, where they're they're acting like they're big hedge fund managers, but I know that secretly they're they're dead broke, <laughs> and they're just trying to make ends meet and you know by being a financial pundit or whatever. And so I didn't. I never write about anybody else. I always write about me when I'm saying something negative. And yeah. so I just started adm- just admitting, you know, the times I've been broke and, and, you know, how much specifically, like how much money I lost and, and what other things personally and emotionally I lost. And, and I found people much more once you start really writing and really revealing yourself, that's when you start really connecting with people.
2: Absolutely.
1: And I wonder if you noticed that like doing the profile, it's probably been a huge pleasure for you doing the profile as opposed to writing an article for yeah. Fortune or or wherever, because you get to put yourself in it.
2: Yeah, I love it. I never thought I would, but it's it's helped me better organize my thoughts and clarify my thinking. Whereas before I would just read things and be like, I don't know how I feel about that, but now I actually have an opportunity to like deeply think about do I agree or disagree with this person? What mental models are they using? And how can I apply it to my own life? It's been fantastic.
1: Like what have you learned from some of these amazing people that you've successfully over and over again applied?
2: Okay, there's one, it's astronaut Chris Hadfield. He always, he- Love that guy. Yes. He's saying space
1: (laughs) oddity in space. He's been on my podcast. Yes,
2: (laughs) he said- um, basically nothing is in, or things aren't scary, people get scared. So when you're little and you're learning to ride a bike, uh, you're scared of the bike because it's this dangerous thing. You could fall off of it. A thousand things could go wrong. But uh, over time, as you become more skilled, you get better. And the danger of the bike never actually changes as dangerous as it always was. It's just, you are not no longer scared of it. So that's one that I think about often
1: did you ever see the movie and it wasn't a popular movie it's like kind of a teenage movie uh the the map of tiny perfect things no so it's it's kind of as a groundhog day premise this this kid a teenager lives the same day over and over again and then he runs into a girl who lives the same day over and over again and they both kind of start off really pessimistic and they're not helpful to other people and they just kind of enjoy themselves living the same day over and over again and all the things they could do knowing what's going to happen that day but then it suddenly he has a change of attitude you know he goes through the arc of the hero he has a change of attitude and he starts really getting involved in people's lives and helping people and enjoying helping people and the day no longer becomes monotonous like we're used to just being monotonous the same thing every day but the day each day becomes completely different because his perception of the day changes. And I thought it was a really beautiful message in the movie.
2: I love that. That's exactly right.
1: You know, when you wrote, um, you wrote one article too. And, and again, this is what I appreciate about your newsletter is that you're not just trying to find someone to write about. You also write about like, here, here's an article, 11 practical pieces of advice I'd give my younger self. And I love this idea of taking mental breaks throughout the day. So you say, for instance, you exercise for about 30 minutes in the afternoon. You'll take a walk uh, with Anthony in the evening for about 45 minutes to an hour. And these mental yeah. breaks are, are helpful. And uh, other people have recommended that. In any case, I like that idea of t- I, sometimes I think I don't take enough mental breaks during the day. I'm just in meeting to meeting to meeting. And I think you said Daniel Eck, the founder of Spotify, yeah. uh, maxes out at three meetings a day, two or three meetings a day.
2: Yep. <laughs> it goes back to what Malcolm Gladwell said of you, you have to spend more time thinking about what you're going to write or work on than actually working on it because um, you, you get burnt out. Like I, I can't sit here for eight hours a day and just stare at a blank screen um, and try to figure out what to write about. As I walk, as I exercise, I listen to podcasts, I hear different ideas, I talk to different people. That's kind of, uh, it, it helps me like, again, clarify my ideas and put it into writing.
1: Now, has there anything that's surprised you that you've learned from these people that you've then incorporated into your life? Was there, because because it does seem to me after doing like hundreds and hundreds of these, there really is a common thread that successful people have. There's not, there's not a. If you take kind of again what what the DNA is that makes them who they are, it's very similar. Whether it's Sarah Blakely or mm-hmm. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or whoever. There's very similar attributes throughout, uh, but is there anything that surprised you?
2: I think the one that surprised me that is common among the most exceptional people, it's that, I mean, you will inevitably fail at some point at something. It's the people who don't fall into obscurity are the people who... Um, know that they can always reinvent themselves. Whether it's Martha Stewart with being charged for insider trading, going to prison, coming back and doing a whole, you know, rebuilding everything and doing it again over and over and over again. She's in NFTs now, she was in CBD with Snoop Dogg. She's done a lot of different chapters, which has made her relevant to my grandmother, my mother, and now my generation. That's really, really rare. And that's the one thing that I found common across all these people.
1: Yeah, and, like, think about her example also. Like, it took years. Like, she had to go to jail first, so that was, like, a year. I don't know how long she was in jail. And then it's not like people say, okay, you did your time. Let's put you back on top now. She had to really earn— Yep. Whether she had earned their distrust is another story. Like, it's unclear whether she really should have been convicted of anything. But uh, she had to really earn her public's trust again— and that takes a long time like she had to really sit there in pain for a long time and you feel that pain Absolutely. and it, it is interesting and failure sucks like nobody wants to fail like it's the worst feeling in the world yeah. but when you when you fail and you come through the other side if it, it actually feels very sublime almost it feels really good so yep. that that's that's the benefit of it of learning from it you You finally learned something you didn't know, which is, oh, I could fail at this. So I used to, someone could say, oh, I used to succeed at everything. I was really thrown off when I failed. I, you know, you feel like dropping out. You feel like disappearing and hiding. So, So. you you know what, you know what uh, I was surprised by was, you know, just interviewing lots of people is how, and this is going to sound a little odd, but how, hugely charismatic they are. So like a lot of times I'll interview somebody and afterwards I'll be thinking to myself, am I Tyra Banks' best friend right now? <laughs> <laughs> like, are we like besties? Is that, are we going to start calling each other on the phone? <laughs> like I'll think that about every guest and yep. they're just, in many cases, and I'm not saying this in a bad way, they they just know how to turn on like this huge, hype of charisma that they aim right at you.
2: But it's also because I think you're a person who genuinely thinks that there's something to learn from everyone. One time uh, I was on a podcast and they asked me, are you ever turned off by someone because they're like very closed-minded or you don't want to profile them because you think that they're a certain type of person? And I I genuinely believe that no matter what you've done and what kind of person people say that you are, there is something to learn from your life experience for other people. So I never go into conversations thinking that.
1: It it reminds me of a story that um, uh, Sergey Brin once said. So Sergey Brin and Larry Page used to interview every single person who applied for Google when Google was a small company. And he knew within the first minute or two that he w- whether he was going to hire someone or not. And But the interview was like 45 minutes to an hour. So if he wasn't going to hire them, he would make it his focus of that hour to make sure he learns at least one thing from that person. Because even though he wasn't, they weren't good enough to be hired, they, everybody was good enough to learn something from. Exactly. And again, what, what I also like how, and, and this this is related to, one of the quotes from uh, the astronaut Chang Diaz, yeah. take small risks frequently rather than huge risks seldom. And this is a philosophy I very much believe in. I wrote about this in my last book, the idea of taking small experiments and, and making your life like more experimental. But I feel like you do this a lot with the, the profile because you, you play with format. You, you don't have one strict format that you stick to.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm trying to it kind of, I, uh, when I started doing, when I started working on it full-time last year, I did a seven part series where I interviewed small business owners, um, about like, it was in the beginning of the pandemic. And I was like, so what are you doing? And I caught them at a really interesting time because it had just started and the, the, the shutdown mandates were just now starting. So you know i thought to like follow up with them and i added some notes on top of their thing but that was that was a format i had never tried before um and people liked it so now i'm like okay what can i what kind of series can i do to do that more uh, it's just it's so easy to fall into a routine where you're not changing or experimenting at all and that's when i get bored and that's when i notice a lot of like stagnation in terms of subscribers so i i think that's a really great idea to try again
1: what experiments have you done lately, or you're thinking of doing? Like, what what what's something that's what, what's going on at the profile?
2: Yeah. So one thing I've thought about is doing. So I've I've written all these things, right? But how can you actually turn them into something people can use practically? So I've been thinking about doing something like the Profile School or a course Mm. or something like that where you take these things and you make it super, super practical uh, and people can learn about all these concepts but from actual people. Uh, So I'm playing with that.
1: I I love that idea. And I wonder how you can experiment with it. Like, Because you have your takeaways that you have in in each dossier edition. I wonder if you... I wonder if you actually wrote an article that was the curriculum, but not the course. You know what I mean? So, like, Mm. here's what I'm thinking of teaching. You know, why wouldn't you take this?
2: That's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I have, like, a very loose plan of it. Last year, I did a one-hour webinar uh, focused on creativity, and I took different ideas on creativity from different people, and I uh, distilled it into a one-hour webinar where people came on Zoom and I taught. Uh, it can be so much better, but it was a very rough version of what I envision it to be one day.
1: What what do you think is the essence of creativity? If you had to if you had to say it in one sentence.
2: Independent thought. <laughs> yeah. The most creative and original people are probably the ones that we consider radical and crazy and insane. Those are the people that are super, super creative. The the most creative person that I've encountered uh, is a chef named Grant Ackett's. Have you heard of him? No. Yeah, uh, he created he um, he created Alinea, which is a very innovative um, restaurant in Chicago. And it was the number one restaurant in the world for a while. But basically he gets inspiration from anywhere, um, whether it's a museum or seeing like leaves fall from a tree. And then he goes back to first principles where he's like, who says that we have to eat from a plate And with a fork and a knife, like who says that? And he doesn't want to be dictated by what plate manufacturers have said you have to do and how you have to dine. So the entire uh, tablecloth is made to look like a piece of art and people eat directly from it. They eat with their hands. Then he was like, Mm. why, you know, the, the actual act of eating like putting a spoon or a fork to your mouth has not been revolutionized in a very long time. So he was like why can't we eat food that floats? So he created something that was like a balloon that floated to you and you could eat it in a different way than you're used to. So all the like the breaking of the monotony of the everyday life like that's what that that's what makes him so creative.
1: That's interesting. I would say it's not only independent thought, it's being it sounds like he's also exposed to lots of different ideas from different yes. cultures and so on. And it's like, oh, they do that over there. Why can't we do that over here? So he's able to connect disparate ideas. Exactly. And, and, from
2: different disciplines.
1: Yeah. So that's that that's really interesting. So you're I have to say, Polina, your your newsletter inspires me. I myself, I feel I've been a little burnt out lately and it's rarely ever happened to me before, like this first time in 20 years maybe. And reading your reading the profile has kind of s- sparked some Aww. ideas in me. So I'm um, really glad that that you came on. I've since I so first much. read your newsletter, I've been wanting to have you on. I think it's a great newsletter. I learned so much from it. I'm just gonna read off some of your archives. Uh, uh, let's see. here's here's an art, one you did on Charlie Munger, and that's the thing too. You don't you don't limit yourselves to yourself to one category like here's a a billionaire businessman here's the rock here is uh uh you know there's Malcolm Gladwell there's Daniel Eck there's uh bitcoin people uh, <laughs> of course cuz anthony uh yeah. Oh, I haven't read this one. I have to read this one. The Crypto Queen Who Scammed the World. That sounds great.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah,
1: so many interesting ones. And then in between them, and then of course, I really like the Tyler Perry one because I didn't know anything about him. I just knew he had a, a, a unique approach to filmmaking. And uh, so I was glad. These are the, like, you don't have to read an entire biography either. Like I love just, it takes me 10, 15 minutes and I'll read some of the, you know, you link to various other profiles of these, of the same people. So I'll read some of those. But it's like a good way to consume someone's life is reading your perspective on it in, in your newsletter. So I like that.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks again for coming on the podcast. And when you have your course, come on again and, uh, <laughs> and talk about it. We'll, we'll talk about uh, whatever you want. You can come on anytime. You can talk about whatever <laughs> you want.
2: we Will do. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Polina.